we are on week three of our series, and I can't remember what it's called. I had it in my mind, and I'm going blank. Faith misunderstood. So there you go. here's Charles. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate that. Hello. Hey, I'm so glad you made it today through all the bikes. You know, who knows how many people are stuck out there, but I'm so glad you're here. It's, uh, it's, uh, today is going to be very exciting. Uh, it is, I mean, really, I, I don't say this very often, right? But this is like one of the sermons that I have been most excited about ever. So it's, I'm so glad you are here. So we are in a, a sermon series that's generating lots of conversation and interest called Faith Misunderstood because we're challenging a lot of misguided common assumptions about faith. So we kicked it off two weeks ago uh, with the title, God Wants You to Be You. And Elmi shared her powerful story about her experiences of churches that made her feel like she had to choose between being false or being alone. Neither is good. Because of her experience of the churches she was at, some churches teach that women can't lead. Women should not lead. Women can't be pastors. And that all contributes to the mindset that women are inferior to men. That kind of sort of you know, subconsciously or consciously makes women feel like I, I can't speak. I lose my voice. And she just really didn't want to go along with that. And that was hard for her. And I just want to be very clear about this. We really believe this, that women can lead. If an individual woman can do a job, why should, be, why should she be stopped? I really don't think that that's what Bible teaches, despite certain Bible texts. We need to go deeper into the principles of the Bible, rather than these letters of the law. It was a powerful service. If you missed it, I really recommend it. It's on our River app, iTunes, our website. And last week, Caroline preached insightfully about how Jacob had to leave his safe, faith-filled home to find God. Isn't that an interesting point? That, that sometimes, actually, safe Christian culture can make God someone else's God. Just stories you hear about, as opposed to your own experiences. He had to have his own experience of God, and he had to leave faith environment to do that. And it was really good, wasn't it? And today, I'm going to address this one particularly misguided approach to the Bible that can cause harm, that can make people mean. And I want to address, what I mean by that is I want to address this oppressive behavior towards the LGBTQ community from large sections of Christian churches. Because it's going on out there. For example, I remember talking with a pastor friend who started multiple churches in New York. Very successful evangelical churches, very hip, doing very well. And he shared with me this problem, a dilemma that he was facing. And he said that uh, his church caters to the younger generation in New York. So he wanted to communicate welcome, inclusive, loving stance towards the LGBTQ community. They didn't want to be like those openly hateful churches. We are in New York, it's 21st century. But at the same time, being a, a, an evangelical, of course he was loyal to the Bible and his teachings. 
So their internal policy was everyone is welcome. We will not preach about how gay lifestyle is sin. We will not be openly, you know, cutting them off. We are not going to teach on that kind of stuff. That's not going to be open. But internally, we, we, we can't do weddings. Gay weddings, is, we're not going to ever do that. And we can't let LGBTQ people become leaders. So that was internal po- policy, but it wasn't communicated up front very well because they wanted to be more, they didn't want to be hateful, you know? Right? This is a very common position for many churches here in New York and around the country. Uh, The problem is, he was sharing with me, that this internal policy, because it was not clear up front, there were LGBTQ community people coming into the church, and it felt safe to them. And so they were getting involved, they were becoming part of the church. And then they would find out later on if they got involved enough to want to become leaders in the church. You know, or wanted the church to marry them. This is my faith community. I want to get married here. Then they would find out that's not allowed. We don't, we don't do that here. And of course that would hurt because they had by this time opened their hearts. They had made friends. They had made this their church home. And then they would find out, oh, you know, they don't really accept me as I am. They'll be left in this tough position of having to decide whether to leave this church to be true to who they are, which would really hurt because they have built up all these relationships by now and they're going to lose all these relationships which they cherish. That's tough. Or stay with the church and and live with this tension. You know, every time I come here, I know they don't really accept me, but, you know, I'm just going to come here because there's other good things, but I know they don't really... And so, you know, you can imagine the psychological tension and hurt and trouble that they would be in. So my pastor friend was aware of this problem, that they would feel deceived, happen multiple times. And so he felt like it would be better to be just up front, right? So he was telling me they had recently made the choice to just be clear and up front from the very beginning, just be up front about it with everyone now look, this is our position, we, we, we welcome you as a person, we welcome you to come, LGBT, we, we want to love you, but you know, we just want you to understand we will never marry you, and you can't ever be a leader here, and that's just because the Bible says it's sin, and we have to stay true to that, and so these are our convictions, and we just be very front, upfront about it, right? That may, you know, so I agree with him, that it would be better to be upfront, because otherwise people do get hurt. You know, it's, it's kind of not honest to appear to be welcoming, but not really. It's like inviting people to your home and say, you know, we welcome you, but not to the living room, you know, not to the dining room. You know, you can stay here in the living room and we want you to sit here, but not over there. You can come on the bus, but not on this section. You know, I mean, it, it just doesn't really like help people feel good, right? And so... I agreed with them. And this conversation made a big impression on me because back then, confusion on this issue was hurting people in this church too. There were incidents that were happening. Uh, Not from up front, not from the pastors, but from some of our leaders who just assumed that our church position would be standard conservative evangelical 
position because we have those roots. We, we built this church uh, as a vineyard church and it's a standard evangelical kind of thing. So there were a lot of people from that, that kind of mindset. So that was just assumed. So, for example, this one incident I remember seven, eight years ago, there was this lovely gentleman from the south that was part of this church, just lovely. He grew up in the Bible Belt. He loved God. He loved churches all his life. But he found out as he grew up that he's gay. You know, I'm not attracted to women. I'm attracted to men. And, and that was horrifying to him because he, he just... All his life he was taught this is an abomination before God, you know, growing up in in those Bible Belt churches. And so it was just horrible. So he tried everything to change his orientation, you know, just everything that you could think of. Because it's just such a horrifying, shameful thought that I would be, he would be gay, you know. Uh, But nothing worked. And so he was just ended up just filled with self-loathing and self-hatred. Why can't I change? I'm doing everything. What is wrong with me? I'm an abomination before God. And so, I mean, this drove him to try to commit suicide three times in his life. Right? Because, I mean, that kind of self, I mean, seriously, the suicide rates among Christian churches is just so much higher among the LGBTQ community than, than normal. Because, you know, people are taught this. It's just difficult psychological things, especially for teenage boys or girls. It's just horrible situation to be put under. So, anyway, he finally decided to move to New York, get out of the South, <laughs> move to New York and start a new life as a gay man. You know, either I, I, I'm not going to kill myself, I'm going to live life and, and try to accept myself. And he found this church, liked it. It kind of reminded him of home. Uh, you know, we're fully Jesus-centered. We're just so passionate about Jesus. I'm willing to give up so much for Jesus. And so he really loved that passion and Bible insights. And he just really became part of this church and went to Bible study groups that are weekly groups and made friends there and just gave his heart, opened his heart up again to church, you know. And then one day, the Bible study leader took him aside and, to, uh, and talked to him about him being gay. You know, he's, he's well-liked, he's a lovely gentleman, uh, many friends, and we, we consider you a friend. But I just have to be a, a clear about this. The Bible takes precedence, you know, that when push comes to show, you know, he would have to stay loyal to the Bible, meaning, you know, if this gentleman ever wanted to get married, same sex, or wanted to become a leader in this church, this, this leader could not support that. I mean, it just, because you have to stay loyal to what the Bible says. The Bible says it's sin, and so we just have to be clear about this. Now, of course, that, that broke this guy's heart, right? Because, I mean, after all he's been through, after all the psychological trauma and, and trying to commit suicide, and, and really just being got a weary of church. He tried again because he loves God. You know, he tried to open his heart again and, and, and make friends and, and trusted this guy to be his spiritual mentor. And, and to be told this, to, to experience this kind of rejection again, it's just really harmful, right? 
I mean, it risks pushing him into a very dark place. Once again, into a place of self-loathing and self-hatred. And uh, normally, a, a kind person would not dream of putting another human being into that kind of space. The tragedy of it all is that this was done in the name of God. I mean, this Bible leader, uh, this guy is just, you know, in any other church, he'll be considered just an outstanding, you know, servant-hearted, knows the Bible really well, and this sort of thing, that what he did would be applauded, that, that he's standing up for the Bible. Against that corrupt secular culture out there, he is courageously speaking up and taking a stand. Even though he is hurting and harming an actual person. And we see that not just, I mean, these are just anecdotes, but statistically speaking, I mean, there are tons of people that are being pushed into a very dark place in the name of God and being applauded for being courageous. This misguided approach to faith made him behave horribly against another human being, and he was blind to that. You know, this, this, is, this was viewed as being faithful to God. So this forced us as, as pastors to address this, this issue clearly. Because, you know, obviously, it, it just, we just have to be very clear about this. Are we going to stand with the Bible even if it hurts people? Is that what Jesus taught? No. Let's just be very clear. No. We stand for loving people at all times over blindly following the Bible and the letter of the law. Staying loyal to the Bible is to choose love over every other objective, including misguided sense of righteousness that comes from following letter of the laws in the Bible. It makes you mean. Well, this conviction cost us. Some of you may notice. Our church is a lot smaller than it used to be. I mean, we are, you know, less than half we used to be. A lot of people felt very uncomfortable with this policy or this position because, you know, the Bible says it's sin. Why don't you just follow the Bible? And that's a really, like, common misunderstanding around in the history of faith. This has always been there. Just follow what the Bible says. This was opposed by Jesus consistently and clearly. Again and again in the Bible. A lot of people just don't understand what Jesus really taught about faith. Let's look at a famous passage about this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck hedge of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest, ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, Sabbath was a big deal back then. It was the touchstone issue of the day, like LGBTQ issue is a touchstone issue of today. This is not the first time an issue like this comes up in the history of church and history of faith. It comes up all the time. 
Back then, it was the Sabbath. Standing up for the Bible. Stand up for the Sabbath. Follow what the Bible says. In this passage, Jesus and his disciples exhibit very little regard to laws of the Bible regarding Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, they are the Bible people of the day. They ask and they object. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they not doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Lawful here refers to laws of the Bible. So what they're asking is, why are they breaking the laws of the Bible? Why are you not just following what the Bible says? What's your problem? And Jesus' answer is so interesting. He does not argue back, which happens so much. Look, you're reading the Bible wrong. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, look, let's look at what the Sabbath really says. You know, this is what you can do. This now. Let's look at the Hebrew original meaning. Let's go deep into this. Go with theological arguments of left and right and chop and dice. What does it really say? He doesn't do any of that. No, what does he say? He talks about David. When he was hungry, he broke the Bible law. He says, he in the house of God. Abiathar was high priest, ate the bread of the presence. It's not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He gave some to his companions. Look, there were very strong Bible laws about who can enter God's presence and eat this bread. I mean, this was very strongly stated. But what Jesus is saying is David just breaks them at will because he was hungry. He needed it. And it's okay. He affirms that. Meaning, if you have a legitimate need, you can break the Bible's laws, is what he seems to be saying. And he just punctuates that point by saying Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. Meaning, the laws of the Bible, or the Bible was made for you and me. Bible was made for humankind, not humankind for the Bible. Don't go crazy, he's basically saying. The Bible's laws are here to help you love yourself, love your neighbor, and love God. People's needs take precedence over blindly following the Bible. This is Jesus' teaching here. Wouldn't you agree? Very clear. Of course, our choice to stay faithful and loyal to Jesus' teachings in the Bible here cost us. It costs to stand up for faith. It costs to stand up for Jesus. It costs to choose love. It costs to create space for God to move. We had to leave Vineyard Movement of Network of Churches because they would not allow our position. We lost lots of people in this church. But you guys have chosen to stay. You know, I'm so grateful for you to be for your choice to stay here and be part of this church because it creates space where people can come and experience unconditional grace of God that changes and transforms people. It's just so healing. It's making tremendous impact on real people's lives today. I'm going to invite Brent up to share. He's going to share his experience and what it's meant for him to find a church like this. So would you please welcome Brent. I was blessed to be born into a wonderful family with a loving mother and father. 
who both had a strong faith. Uh, my father and grandfather were pastors in a conservative uh, denomination where I learned love for the Bible and love for God. <clears throat> I married young. We had children, and we had a wonderful family of our own. We were very active in a church where we lived in Texas. So I was fortunate to have had a childhood and a young adulthood where I was taught the love of God. But I hid a secret. Sorry. Um, Something I felt deep shame about and was terrified that it would ever be known. I'm gay. To say those words in 2017 in New York City barely registers as even interesting, let alone scandalous. (laughs) But for a boy 40 years ago in Oklahoma and Texas, there was no more shameful an identity than that one. Effectively, all of society and all religious traditions rejected same-gender relationships as deviant, perverse, and bad. Every message about it in society, school, church, media was negative, and there were no positive models. These positions, held by basically everybody, seemed to be supported by certain statements in the Bible. As I grew up and began to understand that this abnormality applied to me, it was terrifying and wounding. A literal reading of the Bible says that I am an abomination in the Old Testament. In the New Testament it says, I quote, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I don't want to be dramatic, but it's hard to overstate the harmful impact of hearing relentlessly. That something about your core person that you cannot change is unacceptable and disgraceful. And it's even more frightening to be told that if you accept that part of yourself, you'll be rejected by God forever. In adulthood, it became harder and harder to ignore who I was, so I did everything I could could to find to heal or change my orientation. Therapy, including reorientation therapy, reading, prayer and fasting repeatedly, and nothing fixed it, of course. I was married with a family that I loved very much. And so I fell into despair. and a severe depression. For a brief time, um, I was unable to work. I had thoughts of suicide, so for several weeks I was in an outpatient treatment clinic for depression. Um, Medication and therapy helped some, but they didn't address the root issue and what were, for me, major causes of my depression, which were anger and fear. Anger that I had to carry this burden. Angry at God for creating me this way. Angry at a world that I perceived would hate me if they knew. And fear that I might at any moment lose um, everything that was dear to me. So all this was too much for any relationship to bear, of course, and my wife and I did eventually divorce. I was still keeping my secret, by the way. But now, having already lost everything, which is how I felt, I could now take what was at first a quick peek at myself honestly, and then some longer looks, and then finally start the work of getting to know myself, which for me took years. During this time, I had no relationship with God, at least on my end. It 
it's hard to have a conversation with somebody that you're bitter toward. I heard a quote recently, which I'll paraphrase. We all experience pain from the circumstances in life and hurts from others. But perhaps the greatest violence is the violence we do to ourselves when we don't accept ourselves for who we really are. My road to self-acceptance as a gay man was a long one. And my journey to believing that I'm accepted by God as a gay man was even longer. A couple of years ago, I found myself still in Texas, my children now young adults, and I'm still trying to figure out my life too. And while my relationship with God was non-existent, I was starting a process that was like asking questions about God without avoiding him, but avoiding him directly. I had found some books and authors that gave me hope that maybe God didn't reject me after all. And then in this search to just follow my heart, I uprooted my life, moved to New York City by myself, and started a new career in my 50s. I've been in New York City for just a few months when I first visited the river, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but I immediately felt at home here, which was surprising because I had been visiting churches for years, and I'd come to a place where I'd accepted that I would kind of always be a spiritual wanderer. Um... The second Sunday I came, I uh, found somebody who looked official. I say looked official because she was on the prayer team. Um, and I, to this day, have no idea who it was that I approached. But, um, but she confirmed that the river was um, a, an affirming place for LGBT people. And she said, the pastor recently spoke about it. And she said, I hope you'll come back. The third The third Sunday I came back, I I sat through both services, weeping because of the healing that that God was doing in my heart. Hard to believe, but that was over two years ago when that happened. And over the past two years, God has continued that healing here at the river, rooting deep in me an assurance that he wants a connection with me as I am. And as we hear here at the river often, that that's actually what Jesus taught was the most important thing, loving God and following that to love others as I love myself. When I came to the river, I found it a healthy, loving, alive place. Um, And it wasn't until about a year after I had been here that I learned that just prior to my arrival at the river, you all had been through a really, really difficult time of many people like Charles's right leaving the church, in part because of your decision to be an opening, an open, affirming place for LGBT people. So that was a difficult time for all of you here. Some of you had or have since reconciled the issue biblically and theologically. I'm in that place. Some of you I know are still unsure or conflicted. It's a complicated issue. But you committed to stay and live with the tension of not knowing because you believed it was the loving thing to do. So regardless of whether it's settled for you or you still have questions, you embraced a difficult 
but important change. And you stayed. And because you did that, I get to be here. So, to Charles and Caroline, John and Sarah, in this beautiful body that is the river, I'm so happy to publicly publicly say a big thank you. I mean, we feel God's love, God's presence, and we just so love having you here, Brent. Thank you for sharing your story so vulnerably. Not easy. We love having you here. He's a, he's a lovely human being, Brent. It, it's just... I don't know. I mean, everyone who knows you just, just loves you. You're just a lovely human being. It's a privilege to have you here. So, I'm just so glad you're a part of this. And, and I'm actually so mad that you were subjected to such destructive, oppressive environment for so long. Because of misguided understanding of Bible and of God's heart. It nearly ruined your life. And uh, there's restoration here. And so I just want to be very clear here that the whole principle behind everything in the Bible, everything God wants from you and me, is love. It's very clear. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the important thing to remember. The entire law... And all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. He's making it very clear that everything you read in the Bible, the law and the prophets, that's the Bible. You must use the filter of love. You must use the filter of love and disregard certain things that the Bible said if it does not pass that test. Like the Sabbath. Or like the New Testament command to slaves to obey their masters. That was followed blindly until just a couple centuries ago. And I, I don't know, why are we not following that biblical command anymore? Does any church preach on that? Slaves must obey their masters. It's in the Bible. That's what he said. Just follow what the Bible says. Why are we not doing that? I, I don't know what the conservative Bible Christians would say to that. What we would say is, it's simple. Quote Jesus, the Bible was made for humankind, not humankind for the Bible. You must pass the love test or you disregard it. Slavery does not pass the love test. Can we agree on that at least? So we disregard the Bible and what he says when it happens like that. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, there are laws given by God in the Bible that is against God's will. Matthew 19. Very, very 
important thing to understand. He said, this law was given to you because of the hardness of your heart, meaning there was this cultural context. I mean, people back there were barbaric. There were barbaric things happening. And so God is looking at that and going, if I don't allow slavery, everybody's going to get massacred. So God gave that law. But that doesn't mean it's God's will. Slavery is not God's will. Okay? Even though we find it in the Bible. It's not God's will. Why do we believe that? Because God is love. And God works with context. To just say, follow the Bible across time and culture blindly and just go with that, that's heartless. And it goes against God's will. It goes against Jesus. Now that's what, that's what religions do, like Islam or Judaism. They will look at some holy scripture and say, this is the will of God. Christian faith follows Jesus. And we say Jesus is the face of God on earth. He is our Lord. He says it clear. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning, follow me over these things in the Bible. That's what it means here. So here's my first practical suggestion for today. You know, we always have practical suggestions, right? So my first practical suggestion is don't let the Bible make you mean. Okay? (laughs) Don't let the Bible make you mean. That's the title for this sermon. What I really wanted for the title of this sermon was Don't Let the Bible Make You a Dick, okay? (laughs) But I was voted down. Everyone on staff who was thinking straight said, No, Charles, don't do that. It's not a good idea. But that's what I really want. let's, Let's just not be a dick. Can we just agree on this? Whatever else is happening, if you're ever faced with a choice, choose people over Bible. That is what the Bible teaches. That is what staying loyal to the Bible actually means. To choose love. Choose people over some doctrine or some theology in your head. You cannot compare to the image of God that a person in front of you is made in. It cannot compare with the value of the person for whom Jesus died for. We must love. Because we don't see the whole reality, okay? Whatever convictions we may have. We don't know for sure. And so, don't go with that. Jesus is who we follow. Not the letter of the law. And Jesus was a lovely human being. So this is my second practical suggestion. Make lovely human being your central goal in faith and life. Make it your goal in life to become a lovely human being because that's what the Bible tells you. The fruit of the Spirit, the end goal of all faith. What does it say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That describes a lovely human being. Can we agree on that? That is the end goal of all our effort in faith, to become a lovely human being. So think carefully and strategically about how you are going to become a lovely human being as you get older and older. Because that's not easy. It's a lot easier to become grumpy and gloomy as you get older. You know, your joints hurt, you get back problems, you become more and more convinced that you are right and everybody else is wrong. It's true. 
I'm getting older and that's more and more I feel that way. <laughs> you know? And so you, that places you at a great risk of becoming a dick. Okay? <laughs> right? And so, I mean, look at Brent. I mean, he's become like him. He's, I don't understand why he's not become a bitter, ugly person. With all that he's experienced, I suppose it's the fruit of the Spirit in your life, Brent. It really is. It's miraculous. You know, given all that you suffered. So it's like that Facebook meme that went around a couple years ago. You know, you, this is Bill. When the Bible tells him to be mean, he ignores it and chooses to be a lovely human being. Be like Bill, don't be a jerk. <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches us, okay? That's one of the most important lessons you could ever, ever get. Get this straight. And my final suggestion is lean on God to become a lovely human being. We need a living God to become more and more lovely. This will not come to you just because you want to be. We need God. I mean, if it's not the Bible, then it'll be something else, some political conviction or something that'll make you think you're in the right. And they're all in the wrong. And, and, and it's the original sin, eating from the tree of judging. <laughs> It's just human nature. We become this way. We, we think we see the reality and become mean and blind to how we are hurting people in the name of God. Happened back in Jesus' days with Pharisees. It's happening now. It just happens all the time. It happens at home when we are in a fight. We get possessed with self-righteousness and, and we don't see how we hurt each other. We, we lose sight of the ultimate objective of the faith. And we focus on little things to justify our behavior. This happens, yes? So we need God. You see, this is the beauty and power of faith. When you turn to God, that is an act of humility. When you turn to God in prayer or for help in any way, that is acknowledging there is a higher being who sees the reality and it's not you. You're not the one who sees the reality. It's just your reality. When you turn to God, it is an implicit act of faith to say there is a bigger being that sees a lot more than I do. There's a mystery to all this. And, and that power of faith, that is humility. That is humility, to turn to God and not try to do everything by yourself and by your convictions. And that humility will save you. That humility to say, I turn to God. Help me, God, to see better. I need to see from different perspectives. I need to see people. I, don't, I, don't, I can't just move from my convictions. I need you, God. I can't just... Fight with my spouse or my family from my convictions. I need your help. I turn to you, O oh God. Do you see? That's humility. And that humility will save us. That humility is what leads to becoming a lovely human being. It's a prerequisite. Without that humility, you cannot become lovely. And agreed? Right? Doesn't that make sense? I think that's a good point, yeah?
So have faith, trust in God. God is love. And this is the good news of the gospel. Everyone, absolutely everyone, God wants to connect with you. Like Branch, God wants to connect with every single one of us, no matter how messed up we think we are, wherever we are, God is loving us and pulling us to Him. When we turn to Him, He will transform us and He will make us into lovely human beings. Let's make this our central goal as a person, as a church, and God will move in our midst and we will experience fruits of the Spirit and this is salvation. You see, heaven is full of lovely human beings, right? You wouldn't want to be in heaven if it's just full of dicks, right? So you want to go to heaven? Become a lovely human being. And God is here to help you. Let's, let's worship, let's pray. God, thank you that you love us and you have power to connect with us and redeem us and heal us no matter who we are, where we are. And I'm just so thankful for this group of people, this community of people who is choosing you and choosing your love and your heart. And we trust that as we just keep moving through this life and stumble through this life, you will be there for us. And you will guide us, transform us step by step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.